There's no question a lot is at stake in this year's election at all levels of government. We here at the Topeka Capital Journal are doing our part to share the perspectives of those running for elected positions in Kansas. My name is India Yarbrough, and I'm a reporter for the Capital Journal. Over the next few weeks, leading up to the November 3rd general election, our reporters will be interviewing candidates running for local, state, and national offices. We'll be asking them questions about their platforms and priorities, and having conversations about what this year's election means to Kansans. We hope you enjoy listening to our Election 2020 podcast series. Capital Journal's 2020 election podcast, uh, where we bring candidates running in the Topeka area from the state, local, and national level to come with us and talk about issues relevant to Topekans and Kansans overall. Um, today we have here with me uh, Michelle De La Isla. She's a Democrat running in the 2nd Congressional District against her Republican opponent, uh, Jake Turner, and she's also currently the mayor of Topeka. Uh, Michelle, it's good to have you here. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Awesome. So, you know, I guess I just kind of want to start off, you know, because, you know, a lot of, you know, everyday people, when they see politicians, you know, they think of like, oh, these kind of nefarious, you know, kind of, you know, um, far away people who do kind of, you know, shady stuff and everything. But I want I want people to know who are you, you know, even, you know, even besides the mayor, who are you as, as, a, as a Kansan, as a Topekan? Well... I have a pretty interesting story. I was born in New York, raised in Puerto Rico, and I've been in Kansas for almost half of my life now. Um, I came to Kansas after being homeless. I was a single mom, and I am very proud of you know the work that we've been able to do here in the state. Not just you know the the work that I was doing with Upper Bound, helping kids find their path into schooling, and then coming to Topeka, working at Housing and Credit Counseling helping families figure out their financial issues, uh, then got involved with Habitat for Humanity. I was the executive director there for a while. That's when I finally got involved in city council work. And, um, you know, the, if, if anybody wants to know who I am as a person, the things that define me are family, uh, God above all things, and uh, my kids are my life. Um, I'm a mom, I'm goofy, I love to run cycle, uh, like triathlons. <laughs> I'm a human. I'm pretty human, and I, and I try to sleep once in a while. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's who I am, aside from all the titles and stuff. Cool, cool. Um, so, uh, you know, as mayor of Topeka, you know, you serve the city very, you know, intimately. Uh, I guess, you know, what would you say are your kind of, you know, proudest accomplishments as mayor so far? You know, I think that the, first and foremost, the fact that I have been very involved with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and attending those conferences and being able to, to be part of a network of mayors and resources um, has allowed our community the ability to have Harvard education. Um, if we were to quantify the amount of dollars that that has brought into our community, and most importantly, the amount of expertise that that has brought into our community. I think that, that it's, it's invaluable. It's invaluable. We've sent probably eight people to do a four-week, uh, a, a four-day uh, on-site course uh, at the Bloomberg location with Harvard professors. Uh, and then after that, for a whole year, uh, they were receiving education. Same with me. 
We send people to do public narrative training for six weeks, four more people in our community. Um, and, and just being able to fortify and build capacity. The Momentum 2022 plan is something that I'm proud of as well. The fact that we in our community were, were thoughtful enough to put a technical school in the middle of one of our most impoverished uh, neighborhoods that needed to have access to education and opportunity. Uh, the fact that our downtown is our crown jewel right now, the, the way that it's been redeveloped. I was part of this before I was even in elected office. Um, I mean, there's just so many things. We, we, we have a reignited pride in our community with regards to our city. Everybody's wearing the city flag. That was a huge project that we also undertook. So there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of good things. I mean, there's, we've, we've brought in over 500 jobs since I've been mayor in this community, uh, preserved several companies. I mean, there's, I, I could just keep going, but here's the deal. Anybody that's in leadership is, is, has to be honest and say that we don't do this in a silo. Everything that we do, we do it by working together with everybody in our community to make our community successful. So I think that I'm just proud of our city and all the work that we've done as a team. I see. You know, what, what do you think from your, your, uh, your, your stance as mayor uh, would, you know, would tell voters that, hey, you're, you're also capable of doing this when you're in Congress? So I think that the number one thing is the fact that, look, when you're a mayor, you're dealing with issues that are not Republican or Democrat, right? Uh, I've never met a Republican or Democrat pothole. I've never met a Republican or Democrat, you know, job, you know, person that wants to make sure that they are a Republican to have a job unless it's a political job, right? But the reality is that most Americans are not interested in having a job that is a partisan job. People just want to have a decent job, want to drive on decent roads. They want to have opportunity. Those things transcend party lines. Um, and that's exactly what a mayor does. A mayor doesn't care with regards to, and at least a good one, doesn't care with regards to your party or what your affiliations are. They care about making sure that those needs that are basic to you, that you can have reliable services and that you're cooperating with your community to provide opportunity for everybody, both in the economic level and in the local level. And, and those are the experiences that are not based on being attached to one particular group that are going to be very helpful. That relationship building is going to be very helpful. Becoming a member of Congress means that you are one of 435 individuals, right? So in order for you to be able to accomplish anything, you need to have relationships across party lines. You must be able to color outside the party lines in order for you to get anything accomplished. That's what I've been doing in Topeka for the past almost eight years, and that's what I will continue doing in Congress. Have there been any challenges, you know, being, being mayor of Topeka that you think would uh, kind of translate into, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're in Congress? I mean, like, there's, I think, everything that you're doing as mayor, because, I mean, the number one thing that you're going to be doing as mayor is you're going to be working with your community and making sure that you're able to convey those community needs back to your city manager, back to your leadership, to the council, so that everybody works together to accomplish a goal. And I think that um, Momentum, 2020, Momentum 2022 is a great example of that, our strategy, in which we worked with every segment of our community to ensure that we had the sentiment of the community to bring forth a plan that affected the way that we do economic development. Um, that, was, that was a lot of work. That was 
engaging 3,000 people, engaging a huge group of individuals from our community that were stakeholders to make sure that we were able to move that progress forward. And you want to talk about having to manage a large group of individuals that are all professionals and, and very able to just, you know, speak about what their independent issues are and bringing all of those individuals together for the greater good. That was a great example of what we can do when we work together as a community, and that's what I'm going to be doing in Congress. So I think that, you know, the Momentum 2022 initiative is one of those that we could say, yep, that is absolutely, you know, the, a legislative body at work, a large group of people working together to come up with a plan that is going to benefit a whole community. I see. So, um, you know, kind of moving on to, to the issues at hand, um, you know, 2020 has been a crazy year for a lot of people. Uh, and for a lot of people, you know, it's been crazy, you know, for the wrong reasons, you know. Uh, and obviously the, the big, you know, I guess event in 2020 was, you know, this pandemic that's, you know, altered and changed so many lives. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about another, you know, kind of stimulus package in Congress. And, you know, right now they're kind of, you know, it seems like they're, it's likely they won't get another stimulus package done. But uh, if you were in Congress, um, what, what do you think this, the priorities of this stimulus package should have? Our small businesses. Our small businesses and our local economies. So I found it atrocious that when the Senate ended up passing the first package that, that Congress proposed, the U.S. Conference of Mayors had been working diligently to ensure that dollars were able to come directly to the municipalities so that municipalities could then work with their small businesses. The reality is that there is a lot high likelihood that in quarter four, the businesses that were not able to reopen are not going to come back. Small businesses are heavily reliant on the capital that they are making. You want to talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, just go to Brewbank or go to any of the small places that we have in our community. Um, you know, the Leaping Llamas, just, I mean, there's so many right here. You have uh, Brenda's uh, Flower Place right here in the, in the avenue as well. And if they did not have a way to move that capital, guess what happens? Without capital, they can't do loans. Without loans, they can keep their lines afloat. And business ceases. And it not just ceases for these individuals, it ceases for the employees that are also your neighbors. So I think that the first and foremost priority is figuring out how we are going to be supporting small businesses through this process. And also how we're going to support families that for one reason or another, whether they were sick or whether they were displaced from their employment are still able to receive some sort of support so that their landlords and the utilities and all of the things that are happening in the economy are not completely affected because this virus has the potential to drive us into a deep depression. And we need to make sure that we safeguard our small businesses and our families that are being displaced. I see. You know, there, there's some in, the, in 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 the Democratic Party, you know, who've you know kind of proposed this idea of you know giving you know giving working families you know two thousand a month every month until this pandemic ends. Do you support that idea? You know, I think that um, we have to measure how much you know are you able to work. And if you're able to maintain your job, then obviously, why would we just, you know, give you money if you're already living on the, on the standard that you are living in? Um, but if you are being displaced, then let's figure out a way to ensure that you're able to continue paying your bills and that you're able to continue providing for your family. Because this pandemic is not the fault of our families. So we have to figure out a way to support them. I see. I see. 
uh, you know, with the, I'm not sure how much you looked into this, but uh, you know, with with the current stimulus package that you know that you know Republicans have you know kind of proposed, uh, do you see any kind of like flaws of that? The original package that was written was the Heroes uh, package, and it was going to be a lot of help for local cities and municipalities. A lot of those elements were stripped. Uh, the amount of dollars that were going to be brought into families in the unemployment benefits, for example, were significantly minimized. And the states were being asked to partner with the federal government in providing, I think it was, it went from $600 to I think it dropped to like $200, $300 and the state had to put in a match. I don't remember the exact amounts right now. Um, I think that at this point in time, the federal government should be looking at a more robust package that includes significant support for small businesses, that still provides additional aid to the states because the states are challenged as well with their finances. Mm -hmm. States depend highly on their sales tax. A lot of things are stopping. Um, so let's figure out a way that we provide some support to the state so that families that are needing unemployment are able to receive it. Let's make sure that there is support not just for our small businesses, but also that we're looking at what's happening with municipalities. There's a lot of communities, for example, the city of Topeka had to go through a very difficult budgetary process this recent uh, August, in which we, we, we did not increase the mill levy, but that meant that we had to do some significant budget cuts. Mm -hmm. And cities all across the country are doing that. We're very fortunate that we've been very diligent with our budget management and we were able to do this, but a lot of municipalities are not. So I think that there's a lot of things being overlooked that should be looked into to support our communities in a way that help us recover. Okay, okay. You know, m moving beyond the um, kind of the financial, the economic aspect of COVID-19, um, there's also kind of you know, the, the medical, I guess, health side of COVID-19, obviously. Um, I guess, how, what would you grade, you know, what grade would you give to the federal government's you know, COVID-19 response so far? <laughs> Okay, so I, I love analogies, okay? And here's the analogy that I will share with you. A few years ago, the Ebola, Ebola pandemic was an issue. Um, and some way, somehow, the United States of America was able to manage that pandemic without it impacting our economy. Um, that's a great example on how you deal with a pandemic that we know that it's a clear and present danger. We don't minimize it. We talk clearly about it. We work with our citizens to understand what's at risk. But the number one job of our federal government was to figure out how to decide to prevent this from becoming a big issue in our country. Um, the fact that this pandemic has been personalized and now we have individuals in our country of Asian descent that are being shamed is shameful. Let's start with that. Second of all, the fact that this pandemic has been minimized and there has been so much confusion with regards to the fact that this is a medical issue and uh, we should listen to medical professionals with regards to how to deal with this is another big problem that has created havoc in many of our communities. Our governor right now is putting mandates that are being revoked by counties. Um, and it's just the lack of consistency in the messaging. The fact that our country struggled knowing early on that this was an issue and having the proper PPE and safeguarding the supply lines when this country is the hub of innovation. 
was absolutely sad. So the response that we've had has paled and it has cost us over 200,000 souls. So do I think that the response has been great? Absolutely not. There could have been a lot of prevention done and, and, and there could have been a lot more streamlined communication that would have ensured that as a country we were prepared to deal with this. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, in, I guess, you know, part of that, you know, you know the, the kind of, you know, inconsistency you were talking about, you know, are, you know, for instance, like, you know, some states, they were you know, quick to do statewide lockdowns, you know, or some other states where you're like saying, no, we, we, no, we can't hurt business as much as possible. And, you know, we, we, we have to keep it those open. Um, you know, in, in Kansas here, for instance, you know, the Republicans, you know, are very adamant about saying that there is no business closures at all under, you know, Governor Laura Kelly. So I, I'm just curious, and I'm sure, you know, voters will also be curious too. If, if the scientists, you know, were to tell you, you know, like, you know, the best way to, you know, if, if the situation gets worse and the scientists are saying we need to have, you know, a total lockdown, you know, in order to get any better, like, would you listen to the scientists and, and push for that? Here's the deal. I think that, that that has to be a significant scenario in which our, if you're telling me that our hospitals are overrun, if you're telling me that there is a danger that is in our communities that we cannot control, and our scientists are saying the only way for us to deal with this because there's so many people dying right now, and the businesses are not able to function because um, everybody's sick, then th that's the obvious answer, right? What, what people don't understand is that COVID is both a health and an economic problem. It's, it's not an if or it's a both, it's and, it's a both and. Um, so if we are in a place in which this is where we need to go, absolutely. But I think that we have to deal with everything with a balanced approach. We in Topeka and in Kansas, period, have been very fortunate that we've had a very balanced approach. When we started this, there was a temporary lockdown. And that lockdown was to help us create the capacity in the PPE, making sure that our hospitals had enough ventilators so that we could then deal with the virus as we're having it today. Mm -hmm. If you notice, there is nothing changing with regards to our businesses because we were able, we were very fortunate that at the time that we put a hold on everything, that we shut down our economy temporarily, we were able to get everything that we needed ramped up so that we are able to have enough PPE, enough uh, public health capacity, which sometimes are stressed there, um, and that we were able to have everything that we needed in the hospitals to make sure that things were working. I don't think that we're there right now. I, I don't think that we're there right now. The only thing that I wish people understood that would keep making us healthy is the fact that the mask is not a medical implement, but it helps. It helps in the sense that if, you, if I were to grab this bottle of water, and I know that there's not people watching us right now, but I have a bottle of water, and I were to squirt it at you uh, without the mask on, the water would go straight onto you. If I were to put that bottle of water with the mask on and I were to throw it, the water would just trickle right down on me. Um, and then the new thing that we're learning is that if you keep your mask on and you do get exposed to somebody that has the virus, there was a study done uh, Johns Hopkins did a, a report that there was two uh, hairstylists that had COVID and they had their mask and they had people wear their mask and there were like, I don't know, 60 people that they saw, none of them got the virus. Mm -hmm. 
and they were exposed in close proximity by a hairstylist for like 15, 20 minutes. Um, but if, if, if that's where we need to go, there has to be something big that has been consulted with our government to make sure that we do it. And if we have to do it, we have to do it. But I think it's something pretty extreme. Okay. Okay. I don't like to play scenario <laughs> games. <laughs> um, well, you know, one kind of last COVID-19 related questions, though I'm sure COVID-19 will come up later in the discussion. Um, you know, in, in Congress, you know, there's been kind of a lot of debate about kind of the unemployment benefits amount. You know, um, Republicans, you know, say that, you know, the unemployment benefits, you know, you know, especially if you're giving, you know, too much, you know, that would, you know, de-incentivize people to go back to work. And it's important to get people back to work to get the economy up and running. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you, do you get the Republicans' point or do you disagree or? I absolutely understand that point. But here's the question that it brings. If the government puts out an incentive, first of all, I don't think that there's any family. Let's, let's start by talking about our families. I don't think that there's a majority of our families that are saying, I'm just going to stay home. I think that everybody, for the most part, wants to be productive. So, so putting on families that are receiving benefits, that are minimum, uh, that are not significant, they're not huge, they're not like really uh, lucrative, right? Uh, and, and saying that, that our families just want to stay home, I think is a really negative assumption of the quality of our Kansans and the quality of Americans overall. Um, I believe the best in our people. The second thing that I'm going to say is that I think that that speaks to a deeper issue. I think that the issue that it speaks to is that if what the federal government considers a basic amount of distribution for a family ends up being more than what families are paid, that's a problem. And the problem is not a problem of the family. The problem is what we consider to be a living wage. And that's a discussion to have. Right, right. I see. Okay, okay. Um, I, I, no, I, I do want to talk about, you know, because, you know, this, the second district is obviously more than Topeka. You know, it's more than mm -hmm. just the season. It's also about, you know, you know, the rural communities throughout the second district, you know, that are, you know, I, I would argue just as important as the voters in Topeka. They are. Um, I guess, you know, how would you support, you know, rural communities in the second district in Congress? Well, I, I, you know, I love the fact that I always get this question asked, and what I'll tell you is I have been to pretty much every single county in this district, and every time that I go, the needs are the same. Families are concerned about health care. Health care is the number one concern. In the state of Kansas, our legislature had the opportunity to pass Medicaid expansion. 150,000 Kansans are either un- or underinsured. And they're concerned about their health care. And this was before we had a pandemic. Imagine now, we have four hospital closures in this district alone. That's a concern that we have here in Topeka. You know why? Because even though we have the two regional hospitals, guess what happens in the time of COVID? If something goes wrong and we have our counties having a significant outbreak, guess which hospitals get filled? The Topeka hospitals. So the needs in our communities, whether they're rural or they're, you know, urban, are the same. People are concerned about broadband. That's the same discussion that we are having here in the city of Topeka. The difference is that some families, even though they have the infrastructure, cannot afford it. In the rural communities, you have families that don't even have access to broadband because 
the broadband is body. And we need to ensure that if we're going to support our farmers and support our economy, that we do that. The big difference is the support for our farmers. In Topeka, we, in Shawnee County, there's some farms. Um, but in the rural communities where you have the brunt of the farms in, in, in the district. And our farmers are in need. Um, our trade deal with China went back. And before we actually decided to, to enter into that, that disagreement and start imposing tariffs, we never diversified the streams of negotiations that we could have had. So therefore, it left our farmers hanging. So, so that's the bigger issue that differentiates. But the other, the other needs, I was just in Yates Center, and I was walking there downtown. There's two people that are just like fired up and just working on ensuring that they can revitalize that downtown. Same thing that we were doing in Topeka. When you go and you talk about healthcare, you talk about the needs of healthcare and how you do community care and how do you do preventative care. That's the same thing that we're talking about in Topeka. Uh, you know, families are worried about education. We're worried about education in Topeka. In the end, we're all people. Right. We're all people. The issues are very similar. I mean, different scope and, and you know, in size, but very similar issues. I see. You know, regarding farms hurt by the, um, you know, the trade deal with, with, with China, you know, I mean, Trump's response to that has been, you know, really be sent, uh, just like sending a lot of money, you know, to these farmers, you know, a lot of federal government money. Uh, and he even recently announced that he's going to send even more money. Here's the deal. I don't know a farmer that wants to just stay home and just get money. Our farmers have a spirit of entrepreneurship. They want to be able to get the money that they deserve for the crops that they are working for. We need to stop this. Our farmers are not sitting there just waiting. So I find it interesting. So we have this criticism of the working family that is being displaced. And oh, well, you know, they are getting too much money. But then we celebrate the fact that, hey, it's okay. We took care of our farmers. We're giving them uh, some money. Do you see the disparity in that conversation? Our farmers are hardworking people. Our farmers want to get back to work. Let's make sure that we have better trade deals for our farmers. So that they are not sitting there frustrated because they cannot work the land that they love. And you, you, you mentioned healthcare, and healthcare's you know always been a big national issue, even on the you know the presidential stage and everything. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, do you support you know you know Senator Bernie Sanders' version of Medicare for all? No, no, I see. So you support, um, I guess. So we have, we have a lot of private businesses that are able to work with healthcare and they can pay for healthcare. What we must ensure is that we have a public option and that is where Medicaid comes in. I do agree that we should drop the age of Medicare to 60 rather than 65 so that people then can start entering into that pool a little bit earlier. However, if you are able or if you are underinsured, I think that it would be a great option for individuals to be able to go into the uh, public policy and then you know, be able to just get decent health coverage. But we have unions, we have families, and we have employers that are working very hard to have that private insurance. Why would we take that away from them? Let's make sure that those who are not able to get insurance or cannot afford it have a venue. And this is why Medicaid expansion is so important in the state of Kansas. We have 150,000 families, 150,000 families that are under or uninsured. And our state doesn't have to pay more because the hospital association has worked with our hospitals to pay the 10% that the federal government demands that they match into. We need to ensure that our families have insurance. So we preserve the Affordable Health Care Act. 
which is nothing but protecting pre-existing conditions. We allow people to have access to health care that's affordable. And those who want to go into Medicaid because they cannot afford something in the market, then they could go to the public option. So we have those tiered options. Okay. Another topic I really want to touch on that has been a big part of 2020 and also has been just a huge part of the national conversation is kind of all the, you know, you know, kind of emotions and in conversations surrounding, you know, the death of George Floyd and the death of others. I mean, you know, recently, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, anger over, you know, kind of um, what happened with Breonna Taylor. Um, what, I guess, you know, first off, I guess, what's your kind of, you know, your thoughts on, you know, these kind of deaths happening? They were unnecessary. I mean, I was very open and transparent. When George Floyd died, I was not well. I mean, not only that I, but our children and our families across the country got to see a person that we consider a hero. Because we, for the most part, see our police officers and we consider to be heroes. And we saw somebody take advantage of that station and sit on a man's neck to the point that he perished as he was asking for help. How can we be okay with that? And then to hear that the determination of the court was that the, the penalties were not because Breonna Taylor was killed, but because the bullets entered somebody else's drywall. We, we, have, we have a lot of work to do in educating hearts because I think that the biggest challenge that we have is that we have a country divided not just in ideology but the experiences are so apart that it's hard for us to sit down and have conversations with regards to what the realities are and what somebody really lives um, we're so busy with our day to day that we think that everybody's day to day is like ours and there's nothing wrong with that you know, it's, it's not done out of ill intention. What I think that we need to start doing as a country is starting to have real conversations, civil conversations, in which we share our real experiences so that then we can start having people understand what's happening with these lives that are being killed, with the determinations, and with what's happening every single day in our communities that we are not able to see because it's not our life experience. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a very real and present topic, and it's sadly not a new topic. Is there anything you know you think that you'd want to do uh, when you're in Congress to you know kind of um, help you know address kind of these issues? You know, I I think that the. Here's the reality. We, we, we give Congress like this, like they're at the federal level, they can do it all. But this one is a local level issue. And here's why. If at the local level, we start working to build relationships with our police departments and our minority communities and with our community overall, and we start having courageous conversations with regards to what are the things that people are living, and their personal experiences, what you're gonna start seeing is a shift in sentiment. And with that shift in sentiment comes change, okay? So for me to say that at the congressional level, you are going to put a policy in place, I like to remind people that Lincoln brought forth 
the Emancipation Proclamation and the issues that we were having then, in one way or another, we are still having today. When you're talking about the issues of, of, of systemic racism that permeate our systems, those are issues that are people issues, they're personal issues, and the best place to deal with them is by engaging communities into having crucial conversations so that change can start happening. So I, I know I know you you know you said um, it's definitely more of a local level, and, I, and to an extent I do I do agree you know that you know it really needs to you know be that kind of sentiment change. But you know for like you know for Kansas of color who who do want to see you know you know at least their representatives you know push for policies you know are, are there any specific policies related to this that come in mind? You know I know that we are all concerned about transparency. Um, Right now in our communities, it's not easy for us to be able to see video. Um, and locally, you cannot advocate for that. Um, you know, us being able to have access to, to see more transparency in that process will be very helpful and bring a lot more peace in our community. Um, I can tell you that the, 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 the requests for us to continue working with mental health professionals, um, the city of Topeka is a pioneer. Um, in making sure that we do that. But there's a lot of places across the country that don't do those things. So I think that those are some of the things that we should be looking towards supporting our police department so that they are able to do a more holistic job as they're trying to protect us and keep us safe. Um, I love a lot of what PERF is put together. I don't know if you're familiar with PERF. It's a police executive research forum. They have what they call the 21st century policing uh, guidance. This is uh, some information that came from the federal level from retired police officers um, and I would look to them and to see what recommendations they would have in policy making so that we could then start looking at them and start enacting some of that. Okay, okay. Um, so, you know, I, I do want to talk about, you know, I guess, you know, kind of negotiating. And I mean, you know, I know you said you worked across the aisle for, you know, for many years and everything, so, you know, you believe you're able to do the same when you're in Congress. Um, and then, you know, these are very divisive times and, you know, but I still assume that, you know, many voters, they do want to see, you know, kind of the ability to, you know, kind of reach across the aisle and everything. But uh, I'm just wondering, you know, are there, are, there, are there certain stances or, you know, beliefs or, you know, that you're not willing to compromise, that you're saying like this, you know, I'm drawing like a red line here, this, this is not, you, this can't be negotiated. You know, here's the deal. I don't think that in policy making, you often find yourself with like big determinations that you cannot work through. Um, I'll give you a personal example. If it were up to me, my policy is that I want everybody to have health care. So the question of like immediately would I go to Medicare for all, the answer would be no, not right now, because guess what? We have people that are part of the whole industry that would all lose their jobs. So what's the gradual approach? What's the middle of the road approach? Well, let's make sure that we have a public option and a private option, right? Um, so to me, to me, the, you know, making sure that we have, I will continue doing the battle every single day to ensure that all Americans are able to fulfill what we say every time that we say our Pledge of Allegiance that everybody has, you know, equal access to justice for all, that our systems are more equitable. And um, my values won't change. 
but the way that we approach those policies has to be gradual. You see where I'm going? Mm. So I, do, do I have absolutely non-negotiable um, things that I will you know, die on a hill for? Absolutely, me personally. But when I'm on the quest for the greater good, there's, there's things that we must work on, right? So you're asking me a value question. I do have values that are yes or no, and those are mine and they're very personal. But as a leader, it's how do we get the most done for the greater good? I see, I see. Um, you know, if, if you're elected and you're in Congress, you know, what would your top three priorities be? Healthcare, broadband, and infrastructure that includes education and our farmers. I see. Okay. Um, and then, you know, just a generic question, you know, you know, you know, why are you a better fit for your opponent than, than your opponent, you know, Mr. LaTurner? Simple. The number one issue in the state of Kansas is healthcare. My opponent gutted Medicaid. Done. Okay. 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 Um, well, you know, that, that, that's, that's about all the time we have. Um, I really appreciate you having here. But do you think there's anything else, you know, you, you know the voters should, should know? You know, I, I am... No, I don't think, I don't think that there's anything. Um, you know, I'm just grateful the fact that Kansas has been so kind and wonderful to me. Um, and um, we... This whole deal of politics is interesting, right? You know, you, you end up putting two individuals against each other. And um, that's why I said my issue and the difference between my opponent and mine is Medicaid. Uh, it shouldn't be a personality contest. It shouldn't be a, a character assassination issue. It should always be what are the issues that we defer on. Because here's the deal. Everybody's a Kansan here in the state, right? We're all Americans. We just have different ways of doing things. So as the, the last thing that I would like to tell everybody is, don't feed into the fear that people want to instill in you. Um, yeah, these are challenging times. And yes, the new leadership that you elect, it's gonna be crucial. But be kind to each other. There is no space for us to be anything less than kind to each other. And social media is a platform that we can use to say some things that really we would never tell somebody face to face. And in a time right now where everything is so inflamed, when people are grieving, people are grieving the fact that they're normal is not normal. I don't like this mask. I hate this mask, right? But I have to use it because it's for the greater good. At a time in which people are having losses in their family, in a time in which people are insecure about their jobs, in a time in which you have so much change and you have an opportunity to respond, respond in kindness. Don't feed into the negativity. Don't be, don't, just, just be kind. And that is my call to everybody. And that's my call to the voters, whether they agree with me or they don't agree with me. Just be kind. And in the end, learn to have difficult conversations with your neighbor on why they believe what they believe. If they are bold enough to put their statements on a social media platform, sit down over a cup of coffee and have that conversation over a cup of coffee. Learn about each other and enter conversations with a desire to understand rather than to dictate what your beliefs are because we learn so much. And what we learn is that we have so much more in common than what we don't. Everybody's concerned about the same issues. Let's just be kind to each other. 
I think that that's one of the things that defines us as Kansans, and we need to come back to that. Cool. Well, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. You know, really nice talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. listening to this episode. If you're looking for more, you can support local journalism by subscribing to cgonline.com, reading our articles, and following the latest news on our social media platforms. You can also find more podcasts like this one in the Apple Podcasts app, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.